we're very quick to want everything to be yes, no, black, white, compartmentalized little boxes that are neat and explainable. But if we really believe that we have this giant, multifaceted God who exists so far outside of human comprehension, and again, who, who's a God that we didn't make, right? If we, if we believe that we didn't make this God up ourselves and design him, then it doesn't make sense to think that everything's always going to make sense to us. That was Stephanie Tate, author of the book, The View from Rock Bottom, in which she writes about her story of multiple miscarriages and living with an illness that knocks her flat on her ass most of the day. Uh, But in this book, she also invites readers and challenges readers to discover and embrace a much more rich theology of suffering by exposing some of the ways that we don't even get it. We don't even know we're doing it, but we're subscribing to the prosperity gospel, not necessarily by supporting a pastor who has a private jet, but by constantly believing that we have to do X, Y, Z for God. And if we do, then God is going to do ABC for us. And uh, Steph, her honesty, um, her commitment to being vulnerable and authentic is really inviting. So I think you're going to love this conversation with Stephanie Tate. And if you do, I encourage you to go out and buy the book, The View from Rock Bottom. It is well worth it and it is beautifully written. So enjoy this conversation with Stephanie Tate. Hi, Stephanie. How is it going today? I am physically not great, but mentally I'm here. You are here. You are very much here. Um, I do want to kind of dive right in because your book, The View from Rock Bottom, Discovering God's Embrace and Our Pain, uh, the more I read it, the more I, I felt like, wow, there's just so many, so many questions about the experiences that you've had that I want that I want to talk to you about. So Uh, You write in your book about from the time I think that you were four, you had what you called then breathing attacks. Oh, that came, I mean, much later. That came later. Okay. Yeah. It pretty much started in high school for me. Okay. So I was fine up until then. So talk about like what that was when you first started to experience breathing attacks and then what it led to. So... I was doing like musical theater in high school, right? And I was also a really serious dancer. But I was at a musical theater rehearsal when I was fine one minute and just sitting with a bunch of people chatting. And all of a sudden, I felt like I couldn't get oxygen. And no matter how much I was gasping for air, it felt like the oxygen just wasn't reaching me. Uh, I couldn't figure out what was happening. felt like it was going to pass out. Went on for a while until it just sort of dissipated on its own. Went to a doctor and they started exploring asthma, but it didn't really meet the profile for asthma because when it happened, my airway wasn't closing. Like I was breathing. I just felt like I couldn't get the air. So they did give me a rescue inhaler because they wanted to give me something but my doctor kind of said, I don't, I don't really know what's going on with you. I don't really have an explanation for this. And there was some sort of insinuation at one point that maybe it was more psychological, that maybe I was just 
looking for attention or making myself sick or panicking or something, but they didn't really know what was happening and they just sort of ignored it at that point uh, until other symptoms started to. I slept for like 13 hours a night and still was exhausted. My grades started slipping. I was getting injured all the time. It was kind of clear at that point there was more going on. Yeah. And so, I mean, did that, what kind what did that do inside of you? Were you freaking out? Were you panicking about this because no one really knew what it was about or, and were people sort of trying to comfort you in it? Were they saying buck up, you're going to do it? I mean, how, what was your experience like as a, as you just sort of moved through that as a human being? Did you feel defective? Did you feel, um, yeah. How did you feel? It's weird. I, I sort of feel like at that point in time, when I was around 16, it's almost like I split into this dual personality of sort that I was trying to carry these two pieces at once. Uh, on, on the one side, I was absolutely panicking and completely freaking out um, because I was such a serious dancer. And I thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. And the more I wasn't breathing or getting injured or was exhausted all the time, the more I couldn't do that anymore until eventually it got bad enough that I had to quit entirely. But on the other side of me, because of the very conservative faith tradition I came up in, I sort of had this expectation that, A, this must be God-ordained somehow. He was he was doing something to me. He was teaching me something, or he was going to show up and do some big miracle, and it would just show everybody when I got healed. And so I, I wouldn't even say I swung between the two. It was more I was trying to be both of them at once. I had this panic. But I also felt like I wasn't allowed to have that panic. And I was constantly trying to reassure myself that, no, God is doing something in this. So get everybody to look because, boy, is he going to show up and he's going to either heal me or he's going to show me some sort of like, see, you had to lose dance so that you could be over here doing mm-hmm. this thing. Yeah. And neither one of them really was happening. Well, and that's such a fascinating psychological thing. That one religious system, uh, conservative, evangelical, um, very reformed view that God brings all these things for God's glory. And so there's even a sense of, or is there a sense of like, at first specialness, like, oh, I'm, I must be singled out. For oh, God. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I yeah. thought I've been chosen. Yeah. To, to carry whatever this thing is or to be the receiver of this great miracle that's going to come. Yeah. And it sounds like you didn't, the church that you went to um, wasn't much into like miraculous healings. No. Right. So no, I was in the conservative Baptist association, right. which if you think the SBC is conservative, we <laughs> split off from them way back because they weren't conservative enough for us. Oh and God. then sort of fundamentalist Baptists are a wing that came off of us. So they're even slightly more extreme, but we're pretty close to, okay. to the fundamentalists on a lot of things. So you, weren't, uh, you weren't... no, we didn't do anything very Pentecostal. Right, that was right, right. no, no. So like you, I have a friend who was dragged to, she has uh, CP, cerebral palsy, and she was dragged to every healing service imaginable oh. until it was basically PTSD. <sighs> I mean, she got PTSD from it essentially. Yeah. Um, and so, but it sounds like you, that wasn't a part of your. No. Yeah. 
No, I made a joke in the book at one point that in our tradition, it was more like Holy Spirit wasn't really a thing outside of being like your spiritual Jiminy Cricket, right? Like don't do bad <laughs> stuff. And the Holy Spirit's going to like prick your heart and tell you that's bad stuff. Don't do that. Yeah. But outside of that, we didn't, it was really father, son, Holy Bible. Yeah. Like yeah. spirit just was not a thing we got into. And we were very skeptical and wary of churches that did. So really the theology behind this kind of suffering that you grew up with, it sounds like um, suffering is there to bring God's glory and you need to figure out how to lean into that as much as you can and keep your chin up and just, it's all for God. Is, is, yeah, is that And do it with the smiliest, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was called to be the physical, walking around, tangible version of Caleb, right? Like 24-7 oh encouraging Stephanie all the time. That I That it's not enough to just lean in and bear the suffering. You have to do it with a smile on your face and without breaking a sweat and without a grimace, right? Like it has to be very, this is all okay, because Jesus, so I'm cool with this God, whatever, just your will, I don't matter, I accept it, not just accept it, but I love it, thank you, which wow. is really impossible to do, Well, and, honestly. Okay, so, but but really walk me through the kind of psychological movements you would have to do in order to embrace that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So in, I went through various phases. Like at one point I did a lot of write affirmations and verses out, you know, in your journal on post-it notes on whatever, try to like remind yourself, give yourself very choose joy sort yeah. of mantras. And if you keep sort of fake it till you make it right, like if you just keep pushing, it'll come more naturally. Uh, which does not work right. uh, from my experience. Uh, sometimes it was more it was more insidious than that. There were times that it was more soul searching for, is there some unconfessed sin in my life? Is there some oh, yeah. lesson I'm not learning mm -hmm. that you're trying to teach me? And if I could just get it right, you would lift this and 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 bless me again. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, you know, I had different methods at different times, but always it was very self-focused. It was what am I needing to do to manage this differently? How can I sort of, I would have balked at the idea that I was trying to create my own destiny or anything like that. But in reality, deep down, that's kind of what it is, right? It's, it's how can I get God to move in the way that I want him to by behaving a different way, by having the right attitude, by learning the right lesson, by fixing the right sin issue. Because if I can find that thing, then God will move and bless me and it'll be great. Right. Which you write in your book is, is a kind of prosperity gospel, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, I would have balked if you had said that. I would right. have said, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. You know, my pastor doesn't have a private plane. We're not, you know, saying you're going to be wealthy. But if you really look at the theology there of it's on me to behave a certain way or to say the right thing or do the right thing or believe the right thing, and then God will bless me in ways I can see and experience tangibly, that's still the prosperity gospel. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but then I have some questions that will hopefully tie in um, some of those in-between moments. And But there was, a, there was a time that you and your husband moved from San Francisco and you moved to Oregon. 
and it was it, it you you wrote about it so well like people would tell you like it, it it's about time for you guys to experience the goodness like abundance yeah. is coming basically and it seemed like that for about three months and then you got a phone call your husband got a phone call and um so that was just the beginning of a whole different journey so uh tell us what happened at that at that time yeah so my husband uh he works in tech and so we were making about the best money you can hope to make in the san francisco bay area but because i can't work full-time between my disabilities and because one of our kids uh is autistic and really needed a parent at home we just weren't making it financially and so we made this huge faith decision, literally while on vacation visiting my family, to buy a house in another state and pick up and move our whole life and go somewhere where maybe the cost of living would be more manageable and we could finally get out of this cycle of struggle we'd found ourselves in. Yeah. Uh, and we, we really felt like God told us to do it. We were up there and you know it was all sort of ordained and orchestrated, if you will. And we felt like, yep, we're just supposed to buy this house and do this huge leap of faith. And the house was very different from anything we could have possibly afforded in the Bay Area. So people sort of looked at this beautiful house, this very drastic change in quality of life overnight and saw that as, okay, like your time has finally come. You guys, you took this big leap of faith. You did what God asked you to do. You left everybody you know and started over. And look, now you're going to reap all these blessings in this giant house, in yeah. this great new life. But like you said, like three months after we got here, uh, he was supposed to keep his Bay Area job and telecommute, and they had approved all that. They called us up and said, just kidding, we're actually going under, and you're laid off, bye. Wow. And we had spent all our savings moving to a new state. We had taken on a mortgage that we could easily afford on that salary, but right. now we were facing taking an Oregon job, but I think we took over 33, 35% pay cut when we wow. finally got a job up here. Uh, everything changed dramatically, like dramatically. And then in the middle of all of that, we found out, surprise, we were expecting, which was not on purpose. And it was a shock. And yeah. we, we were unemployed for like three months. We had defaulted on a brand new mortgage. Uh, there was a mix up at unemployment. So we had no income coming in, not even unemployment checks at the time. And it was the worst possible timing to find out we were expecting, especially with my health. And it was just going to be a lot to walk through. But much like in the past, we tried to get our attitude adjusted and decided, nope, God's doing this great thing here. We're going to get on board. Uh, and we did sort of get on board. I managed to really fall in love with the idea of, okay, we really did want another child eventually and the timing may suck, but here it is. We're going to get our miracle baby and it's just really going to put the cherry on top of this blessing Sunday of moving to Oregon <laughs> until I went to the first ultrasound. And I don't even know why I didn't take my husband. He must have had a job interview or something. I can't even mm. process why I wouldn't bring him with my history, but I went by myself and the pregnancy was not viable. Yeah. Yeah. I had what's called a missed miscarriage. So my body didn't get the memo that the pregnancy mm. was not viable. And I was going to need a procedure to remove mm. the pregnancy, basically. Uh, and it was all a blur. I don't even remember driving myself home that day because it really, instead of being the big cherry on the Sunday, it just sort of, that was where rock bottom was for me of yeah. after years of struggle and pain and doing the right thing and 
taking this big leap of faith and moving to another state, that's, that's what I got. Loss of job, default on the new mortgage. Here's a surprise baby. Never mind. There's actually not a surprise baby. Now you need this invasive, painful medical procedure and your seventh miscarriage. It felt very unfair. It felt like the opposite of everything I had been led to believe was what I supposedly deserved, right, for choosing to do the right thing all the time. Yeah. Well, when I read that and when I read the number seven, it was like, I mean, I, I, I read it, so I read the number seven miscarriages, but I still felt like, wait a minute, say that again? Um, yeah. So even for those of you listening, you had seven, seven miscarriages. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, Stephanie, like, how are you, what are you hanging on to at that point? So this is the part of the story where I've had people ask, like, so why very various versions of this question, right? Like what, why even have faith at all at that point? Why not just say all of this is a lie and burn it down and walk out? Or what, what made me even think to start studying suffering at that point and, and, and trying to find biblical answers. And it's going to sound like a cop-out answer, but I wasn't really hanging on to much of anything at that point. I don't yeah. think I was doing it at all. I honestly have no explanation for this other than the entirely supernatural. He must have been chasing me something fierce, yeah. and he must have been desperately clinging on to me because I was pretty done. I, I was done. I basically laid on my bathroom floor crying and screamed versions of where the hell are you and yeah. how could you do this to us? And this, this isn't right. This isn't fair. You're not a good God. You're, you're horrible. And I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I don't really know how I moved from that to wanting to get a biblical understanding of what was happening to me other than I think the only catalyst I can explain it with is that I yelled all that and I laid on the floor and I said all the things that I thought were completely sacrilegious and that you weren't allowed to say. And he was still there Yeah. and he still met me in it and he didn't leave, you know, no lightning bolts came out of the sky. I, I didn't have my life fall apart. He didn't punish me, right? Things didn't get worse. He was still there. And I still felt him, if anything, more nearly in that place of brutal honesty on the floor. I think that may have been sort of the catalyst of, okay, if, if, if you can handle me here on the floor like this, then you're not the God that I had pictured or that I had been led to believe you are. So maybe there's hope for us yet. I, I love how you wrote that, and it comes back over and over again throughout the book, this sort of idea of who are you when you're, you know, like when you're on the bathroom floor, I think you call it a Gethsemane moment, right? So Jesus was, Jesus had his own moment of suffering and moment of doubt and moment of um, really questioning it all, I think. Yeah. And um, and I think that's, that, that must be... Um, it's like what I think is that when we come to that moment and realize we can pour it all out um, and then God doesn't disappear or our air quotes here, blessings don't disappear, that actually 
there's intimacy to be found there. Mm -hmm. um, that's that seems like um, I hate to say the the heartbeat of your book, um, but that's what I read in it. You know. Yeah. Um, no, that's accurate. Uh, yeah. That really is sort of the cord running through the whole thing is this idea of it's not just okay to lean in and tell the truth and tell God what you really are experiencing and be honest and not put the fake face of it's all good right. over top of it. It's not just okay to do that. It, there's intimacy in that, that we're designed to experience Yes. that, that if you want to really get to the good things that are buried deep inside of this horrible pain, you, you have to find a place to be honest and share in that suffering with Christ instead of trying to shoulder it all on your own and pretend that you're okay with that. Right. Because like you said, the Gethsemane example, he, he modeled something different. He didn't just say, not my will, but yours be done, which is how we're so often taught that story, right? Like it's just this little scene change. He just goes mm -hmm. and he kneels down and he's like, it's all cool, God, your will. And then he gets <laughs> up and we move on to the important stuff. Yeah. But that's not how the story exists in the text. It's, it's in there three out of four times mm -hmm. for the Gospels. Mm -hmm. It's a meaningful story. Yeah. And if you piece it together in all three accounts, this went on for a very long time. This right. is not a quickie prayer. This is him anguishing over and over because he doesn't want to have to do this, this horrible thing that's before him. And he's pleading for any other way out. Yeah. If he can model that, then why do we think we're expected to put on a brave face and say, it's okay, God, none of this matters, all for your glory, I'm cool, whatever, mm -hmm. yay, Jesus. Like, mm -hmm. That's not what he modeled at all. Yeah, uh, that's a gorgeous piece of writing. And I think I, well, I know I agree 100% that that's there uh, to, to, that's just one of the ways that God is with us in Emmanuel, you know, like Jesus mm -hmm. is with us in our pain um, because he modeled it. And I, sometimes I, I have wondered, like, where did he learn that? And I wonder if he learned that from his mother, you know, like, mm -hmm. be it done unto me, just as you say, and a sword will pierce your soul as well, Mary. And um, who knows what happened with her husband, Joseph, or even what kind of relationship she had with him. But some people think he must have died at some point because, you know, we don't see or hear much of him. Um, but I just, I, I wonder about that, you know, like mm -hmm. the, the legacy of, um, finding God and suffering that maybe Jesus learned from his mother, but mm. that's an aside. You, at, at the very beginning of your book, um, you write, and I quote, it's, uh, about your book. Uh, it's not about the ending. It's not about when healing comes or if it ever comes at all. It's not about proving God's faithfulness by showing exactly how he provided for me. It's not about helping people hold on through the hard times by promising that it's all going to work out in a way that they can see and understand later. Hmm. Uh, like I underlined those lines. And so maybe you just answered it, but what is it about? Like what, what is... Like, why did you write this book now? It seems like there's a lot of reasons why not to write this book. Yeah. Um, why did you feel so compelled to write it? And what is I it about? I wrote the book that I felt like at the time I needed but couldn't find. Yeah. I, I saw a lot of too 
extremes and not a lot of in the middle. And one extreme was sort of, I tell this joke a lot, bear with me. Susie Blogger tells you every bad thing that's ever happened to her in excruciating detail, but she had a really great attitude because Jesus, mm-hmm. so what's your problem? Because your stuff is definitely not as bad as hers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of that book and I did not want to write that book. Uh, on the other side, there was a lot of sort of bad John Piper theology, if you will. Yeah. All of this is ordained. It happens for a reason. Quit questioning it because you're questioning God and that's sinful. So accept everything because Jesus. Uh, that didn't really work for me either. And I guess there was a third category of sort of pro- outright prosperity gospel yeah. sort of books. Yeah. Draw the circle, prayer of Jer- Jabez, like just... <laughs> Claim your way out of this somehow. Here's a magic formula for accessing the way to fix it. Yeah. Uh, What I didn't see was what I kind of call the messy middle, right? This sort of nuanced take of, I don't think God was doing any of this to me. I don't think he looks down and says, you get Lyme disease and seven dead babies because it's going to teach you stuff. So let me send that to you. Like that's, that's not the God that I see in scripture at all. But on the other side, I wanted to figure out, but what does it look like to find purpose Mm -hmm. and hope and even Mm -hmm. joy inside of these places? I don't want to say, so God's not in this at all. It's all just bad. Life just sucks. How do we find space for a middle where we say, I don't think you, you send me bad things, but I do think you can take the things intended for my harm and use them for my benefit. Yeah. And so I tried to write the book that I needed. I I tried to to write what I needed on that bathroom floor, an example of a very present tense testimony. I don't have the healing story for you guys. I'm still very sick. I don't have an explanation for seven dead babies. I just don't. Uh, But I'm still here. Yeah. Still a person of faith. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I still have hope. And I still have purpose and yes, even joy. So maybe we can meet together on that, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. there are others who just need to hear instead of waiting for someday when this all gets fixed somehow, how can we live the life that we have right now in that messy middle? Yeah. And and that's what does come through really strongly um, in your book. And I think it's what I I, I found so compelling is that, that you refused to give uh, any bullshit answers, you know, I mean, that I could, that I could find anyway. And I think when it comes to um, great suffering and, and enduring sort of pain physically or emotionally, I wonder if, if, if the reason why we go toward that sort of John Piper theology that, that God brings all of it is because the alternative is way too scary. Like if, if anyone Mm. can get, anything, even if they're super faithful, then life is way too unpredictable. And right. And, and sort of what's the use of, (laughs) what's the use of God anyway, if, um, you know, if, if it isn't God bringing us, I mean, like people, it seems like people would, would rather believe in a monster of a God that would bring unending suffering to someone just to prove something, um, versus the alternative that that you know the universe is just 
there are lots of things that will happen to us. And if we read the Bible, it seems like lots of things certainly happen to almost every character that were unexplainable, that God didn't just erase with the with a, a magic miracle or something. Um, I think that's kind of the other thread I felt like was the sort of, it's harder to see it, but it's the other heartbeat of the book for me that I think takes a little more digging to pull out, which is we're, we're very quick to want everything to be yes, no, black, white, right, compartmentalized right. little boxes that are neat and explainable. But if we really believe that we have this giant, multifaceted God who exists so far outside of human comprehension and again, who, who's a God that we didn't make, right? right, right, if, we, right. if we believe that we didn't make this God up ourselves and design him, then it doesn't make sense to think that everything's always going to make sense to us, that it's going to fit in neat little boxes, that we're going to have good black, white answers for everything. And I'm not saying, so, you know, studying the Bible's a pointless pursuit or theology is all just, you know, for not, it's, it's unknowable. I think there's a place for studying and seeking and wanting to learn what we can. But I'm very wary now of any sort of faith that believes everything is super obvious, black and white, easy for us to understand and explain in ways that you can be sure of everything you've been taught. Just sort of put that in a box on the shelf and move on to the next thing. Uh, It's scary to have this sort of new faith in which... I had to make room for for mystery and for nuance and for things that sometimes even seem contradictory, yet somehow get tied together in this big God who can hold the both ands instead Mm -hmm. of the either ors. Mm -hmm. I love that. Hey, we'll get right back to the podcast, but I want to let you know about a new resource that I'm creating called Finding God After Losing Faith. It's for anyone who feels stuck in their religious system who feels like they can't possibly make it one more day without believing something new. In this weekly email, I'll provide links and articles and poems and some of the best and most inspiring things that I know about in order to help you keep finding God even if you've lost your faith. But the only way to get it is by subscribing to my weekly email. And you can do that by going to my website, steveweens.com. And then scroll to the bottom and subscribe to Finding God After Losing Faith. I'm really excited about this one, and I hope it is a really helpful weekly resource for you as you continue to search for God. Now, back to the podcast. Well, you you write, um, and I can't remember where it is, but um, maybe the middle, and I quote, It's always in our times of greatest suffering that our core beliefs are the most exposed. Hmm. And I, again, that was another underliner where I said, okay, um, I like how you said that even because I think faith is growing beyond, like having our beliefs be exposed for how limited they are so that we can move into something a little more expansive and a little more nuanced and a little bigger, right? But, But so like say more about what, you mean by that and how you experience the growing of your faith through and and I want to I want to make it super clear too. I, I don't read in in your writing nor am I saying even that like the great purpose is that you would have a bigger faith right. you know because that's just another no. version of prosperity gospel so, and that was my yeah. fear 
when I was doing the work of the book, I had the same fear come up with my editor over and over and over again Mm -hmm. of I'm fighting so hard for nuance Mm -hmm. that I'm afraid it's just going to come out convoluted (laughs) and that it's not going to be clear what side I am on because in reality, I'm not really on a side. I don't ever want to say anything that sounds like the goal of this book is to explain why human yep. suffering happens. And now, you know, yeah. because that's garbage theology. Yeah. It, all of it is. You will never get the explanation for every bad thing that happens to you on this side of eternity. And that's why even when I talk about things like finding purpose in our suffering, purpose is a very different word for me than reason for. Yes. Right? Yes. Finding good things is not saying, so this was all a good thing after all. That That's mm-hmm. not it either. This is so much more nuanced than that. But now I've forgotten your question because I got excited about that tangent. <laughs> no, I, I so, me too. Me too. I, I, I sort of led you down the, down the path and lit you up. The question is, from your quote, it's always in our times of greatest suffering that our core beliefs are the most exposed. And that's such a great truth. So I wanted you to say more about that. Think about like the platitudes that we all immediately jump to or Mm -hmm. the sort of unthinking uh, exclamations that come out Mm -hmm. when you hear about something really tragic, right? When you hear that some really great Mm -hmm. person has experienced a death in the family or has gotten cancer or has been robbed or something horrible happens to Mm -hmm. them, our gut is to say, oh, you know, but why them? Like they're such a good person or Mm -hmm. some version of how unfair all of this is or Mm -hmm. how they don't deserve this Mm -hmm. or which sounds right on the surface until we really dig in behind that and go, wait, does, does anybody deserve Right. Why? Why do you deserve it less because you're a good person? Or it really starts to unravel a thread of just how much prosperity gospel thinking is hiding out underneath a surface veneer where most mainstream Christians would say, I don't believe the prosperity gospel. But the more you pull in tragedy at those little threads, the more you start to see, wait a minute. On some level, I guess I've always kind of believed in a spiritual meritocracy of mm-hmm. sorts. Mm-hmm. There's some sort of ledger balance in the heavens of, you know, you may not be wealthy, but you're certainly not going to have horrible tragedies or be living under an overpass somewhere. There's mm-hmm. some sort of balance, baseline minimum of safety and security that you're guaranteed because you're doing what you're supposed to do because you're quote unquote inside God's will. (laughs) And when real tragedy hits, when long-term suffering goes on, you, you can't help but see the faultiness of those beliefs exposed. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have a choice People ask me about, you know, deconstruction all the time. What made you kind of go down? I didn't just sit and intellectually decide one day, you know, I'm going to take apart my faith and see what pieces still work for me. It all blew up in my face because suffering came, because I was forced to deal with that disconnect of, okay, if following God and behaving the right way means I'm going to be blessed did I not behave the right way or did you just not hold up your end of the bargain? Cause it's not working for me. So 
explain. Yes. It, it all fell apart whether I liked it or not. Yeah. It sort of happened to me. And I think that is sort of the great gift buried inside of suffering is it does force you to take that step back and not just change what you believe necessarily, but see what you believe. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for saying that. And I think if it's true, like I love what Richard Rohr says that you know, if we say God is mystery, then we're not saying God's unknowable. He says, we're saying that God is endlessly knowable, you know? And so, uh, um, so I like that. yeah, me too. Right. So, so it means that we will probably consistently, if we're actually expanding, evolving, growing, whatever word you want to use, we will come to points where just like you said, we see, oh, I, I didn't, I believed this and it's all I could believe because it's all I, all I knew and all I, but now I see that there's, that, that there's more, that that was too small. Um, and I think that's a great moment of liberation where it can mm -hmm. feel like, oh, my tribe that I grew up with, my, my conservative Baptist church or my whatever, they lied to me. They didn't tell, you know, and it's like, yeah, well, maybe, maybe they lied to you, but also you're just at a human point where you are a very universal thing that's happened to so many people where yeah. now you get to see more and yeah. it sucks and it's terrible. And maybe you wouldn't trade any of that. Um, or maybe you wouldn't even want any of that, but here you are. And I think even, even the mysterious b book of Job gets so misunderstood, you know, because I think that's Agreed. like we, we read it and we, we try to make that into the reason where I, I think more like that, that is just a gorgeous book, uh, sort of a, a story about the ridiculousness of trying to come up with a rock solid uh, theology of why bad things happen. You know, mm. it's like, no, that is ridiculous. Um, so, uh, you know, because even, even, even Joe, I, I mean, he, he, he did exactly what he should do. Railed at God. I'm, I, this is, I was, I was righteous. I didn't deserve any of this. Yes. That's totally what he believed. And it got exposed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, and then you see the, his friends in the text too, right? With their constant, well, Idiots. maybe you need to do this and maybe it's that. And maybe that, and yet the irony is exactly what you're saying that we hear Job lifted up much in the exact way the story is supposed to be telling you not to do, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's ironic. Well, but you, I don't think you can see it sometimes as clearly until you hit your own tragedy, until you hit your own suffering, until you're in a place where you hit that rock bottom and you look around and see, it seems obvious now, the misuse of that, that book, mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. misuse of all these platitudes. But when I was on the other side, I didn't see any of this for what it was, right? Yeah. I was fully participating. When yeah. I first got sick, I thought, yep, that's how it's going to go for me too. Uh, I was complicit, if you will, in the whole system. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to see until you're sort of forced into this 2020 vision that nobody wants. No, nobody right. asks for this, right. but that is one of the few gifts that comes out of it. Yes. Well, okay, I want to read another one of your quotes, which I loved. And this is toward the end of the book. When our faith becomes marked with triumphalism, 
and false positivity. We miss the intimacy with Christ that our pain makes uniquely possible. Hmm. Sometimes when I do these interviews, like, you know, like you, you wrote that sentence probably two years ago, you know, yeah. you know, so it's I like, was, oh I was yeah, I wrote here thinking like, wow, that's, that's good. That's like, pretty good. That's, <laughs> I like that. I oh wait, I wrote that. I okay. I guess I don't suck as bad at this as I thought. <laughs> but seriously, as an aside, we should do these interviews when we're writing the book. You know what I mean? Like by the time it gets to it, you're like, oh God, I hardly remember. Anyway, um, total aside, but because to me, that's what comes through in your book over and over again. And even as I'm talking to you now, in a way that feels real, um, because maybe to some people, the intimacy of Christ, maybe even that feels like the carrot at the end of a stick. And, and that's not what you're saying. I think, let me see if I'm going to try to I'm going to try to summarize it and you say, no, well, that's 72% it, but but not quite. No, this is good. I want to hear what yeah. people think I said because I'm very unsure if I got it out there uh -huh. as clearly as I'd hoped. So this will be fun for me. <laughs> how, how, how I interpret your, your book, but also is that, that God doesn't bring pain to teach you something. God doesn't cause it. God doesn't, God's not like that. And, and not but, and when you when you're honest about your pain when you have those bathroom moments those gethsemane moments that you wouldn't have without pain like you you just wouldn't you wouldn't be on the floor cuz you wouldn't have to but when you are forced to go there by pain or by whatever there there it, you you find the gift of intimacy in a way that you didn't earn it you didn't it's not a reward it's not you know the the gold at the end of the rainbow it's just you're almost surprised by the gift of it um, yeah is that that's, close that that's accurate okay. that's very accurate i Say think more Say what's more. hard for me to communicate clearly and i tried so hard in different chapters but i'm still struggling with this idea of i i see a god who is so big and remember, exists outside of our comprehension of time and space, right? Who knew long before I was even, you know, a speck of dust, I didn't exist, that these things were going to happen to me and that, and that this was going to be my experience. And that's, first off, a very different thing, again, from saying he ordained it, he planned it, he wanted me to get sick. Mm -hmm. But he knew, he knew I would. He knew it would happen. He knew sin would enter the world. He knew brokenness would be a part of our story and that this world wouldn't be a perfect paradise. And so I believe in a God that was big enough to look again. This is kind of like heady stuff, mm -hmm. but who looked at the choices there and went, OK, so I could have them not have free will so that they wouldn't make all these bad decisions. But that's that's not a good choice. Or I can almost sort of pull the ultimate haha -ha on Satan here, if you will, mm -hmm. and, and sort of build this back door in of you may intend these things for their harm, yeah. but I'm going to sort of slip a design into them that allows these things to be used for their benefit mm -hmm. if, if they can come meet me in it. Yeah. And, and I see that reflected in I tried to write a little bit about, you know, we have a Jesus who did not just come down and die for our sins, 
that's it. Like he just comes, dies, goes back up the end. That's not Jesus story, right? He comes and he lives a life. He experiences humanity. He walks what we walk. So I, I have to imagine that in 30 something years of life that he experienced what it's like to be lonely or yeah. what it's like to have a friend betray you or what it's like to get rejected or what it's like to be misunderstood or be sick or get hurt. Mm -hmm. or So we have a God who came down and made it possible for us to meet him and experience this intimacy inside of pain by first coming down and experiencing what that pain was going to be like yeah. so that we can meet him inside of it. So I know it's all like very heady theological ideas, but I, I, do, I think there is a nuanced difference between God designed these suffering things to happen to you and saying, I don't think he did, but he knew they were going to come. And I think he designed us in a way that surprise there, there are actually good things that can come out of this now. Yeah. I don't think it's all that crazy to say that. I mean, I think there's a way in which, um, for those of us who have kids, that's not everybody, but there's a way in which you know your kid well enough and you know the situation of the world well enough that if, you're, if your kid makes a certain choice, then, or even if your kid doesn't make any choice, like, but goes into a situation, you can kind of go, gosh, I, I bet this will happen, you know, like yeah. you kind of know what will happen and then it happens and it's like, oh, um, but I can understand, like, I know what it's like to feel, oh, like it's such a vulnerable feeling to walk with your kid through that. Um, mm -hmm. and no one has to say like, oh, you know, Ben's dad caused that. No one would even think that, but right. Ben's dad's gonna walk with Ben through through that and maybe even some good could come. So I, I, I actually think that's a far more believable and human in, in, the, in the very best way um, response to pain possible. Again, mm -hmm. I think the whole notion that, that forces people to believe in a God that causes all things is rooted in fear. Um, that's yes. actually rooted in, cause if the, I have to believe that God caused all things. Otherwise mm -hmm. I would be utterly thrown off by every single thing that I see in the world. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any explanation for it, but that's where you should go so that you can develop faith. You know what I mean? Like, like, mm. like those questions that haunt you and you, oh, I, I don't get it. That's also, I think in the same way that you say, you know, um, intimacy with Christ um, is possible through really leaning into our pain, leaning into our questions, leaning into our doubts, leaning into yes. the what? All of it. What? Um, that expands us in ways that is, that really, um, without that, it just feels all too small, you know? Um, I can't believe in a God that that's that small. It doesn't well, make any sense to me. I think you're also kind of tying to sort of the end, the end of the book, I, I presented this concept that, you know, as much as the prosperity gospel, for me, the root idea there, the root sin, if you will, is this need for control, right? I have yes. to control the outcome of what God's going to do to me through my behavior. And it's, it's that misplaced belief of I can control things. Yeah. Here's how yeah. I felt like for me now, the struggle had moved to the same root sin, but a completely different expression of now, 
I had come to a place where I didn't really have hope anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really practice faith in a, in a belief way. It was very, no, I've just accepted that I'm a sick person and that all this bad stuff's happening and I don't believe in healing. I don't believe in any of it. And I don't know how to hope anymore. And I had learned that that too was that same control need, right? It's mm-hmm. hard to keep asking for healing, knowing that you're not promised a yes. Right. So it's easier to just not ask. I think this is much of the same. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It's that same root need of control that leads you to the John Piper theology of, I have an explanation for all the bad things in the world. God is sending this on purpose. Yeah. And I'm just too human to see the amazing good reason that mm-hmm. I need seven dead babies. So <laughs> oh I'll just, gosh. you know, praise you for the dead babies. Like that's gross. Yeah. But it's again, I think it's that same yeah. root need of we want to feel like we have it in control. And and even more than that, that we have the right explanation for everything, that it is explainable in the first place, but mm-hmm. that we know the explanation. Mm-hmm. And whether that leads you to prosperity thinking or cynicism or John Piper theology, it's all coming from that same core misstep of wanting to have those neat answers for everything. Yeah. I I agree 100% with you. And it makes me wonder, like any, any wild swing from one side to the other, you know, like that, like that you just, that you just described, like, um, it it probably is just the same exact thing, just with a different uniform on it. You know what I mean? I mean, like, and that's just, that's exactly what you just said. I'm just saying it in a different way. Um, it, it, it might feel different at first, but it's just like the, like the, like the progressive person who used to be a super, super fundamentalist, um, and, and really now. I was now, just thinking yeah, about what yeah, you said like this, yep. Still, it is still fundamentalist, just about different things, you know? <laughs> we often do take the same toxic baggage yeah. into whatever the next thing is that we create. But yeah. I think that's why we circle back to that idea of the, the gift for me the first gift in suffering was not necessarily changing to a different belief system. Right. It was being able to clearly identify what it is that I believe in the first place, which is part of why, you know, I started out the book with some some sort of deconstruction of prosperity thinking before mm-hmm. we can talk about how to build a healthier theology of suffering. Because if we don't know what it is that we already believe, yeah, we're just going to carry those same systems and patterns and faulty beliefs and toxic baggage into whatever the next thing is. We're going to feel like we swung the pendulum to the other side and not realize it's that same root underlying (laughs) junk underneath it, just under a new name. That comes through pretty clearly, actually, in your your book. And and I'm so glad that you went there because I think... um, the great temptation that 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 keeps us from um, any kind of moving forward is is that very thing. It's just is is thinking that we're moving forward, but but just just wearing a different a different uniform over the same stuff. So, okay, we are almost out of time, uh, but I do want to ask you just two more questions if you have time. Do you? Oh, I do. Okay, fantastic. So this is this is much more sort of on a day to day level. Um, what is it like to live with Lyme disease? Oh boy. I know. We just like, <laughs> we, uh, hopefully that doesn't feel like a complete beer left, but, um, yeah. it, it's hard to answer that question because it varies so wildly. Yeah. Um, 
there are times when it is very obvious to anybody who looks at me that I am not well, that I am disabled. And it's very clear. Um, when you and I saw each other in person recently, it was one of those times. My tremor was bad. Mm -hmm. I was completely dependent on my cane. I was exhausted as having trouble composing sentences. I was not tip top shape. Uh, and then there are other times where you wouldn't know from the outside. There are still things I can experience. Um, even throughout this conversation, it may not be really obvious, but I'm having a hard time reaching my words. I'm mm. scrambling and mm. taking my second or third best choice because the first one I just can't get to. Um, it's called aphasia. You, you, you can't necessarily hear it, but I can feel it. Um, I'm, you know, there's fatigue. There's chronic pain still. Uh, these things are not always evident, but they're, they're there. And then there are days where I wake up and I think, wow, like this is a good day. Maybe I'm better. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I'm not sick anymore. I'm having a really good day. But it varies wildly day to day. And I never really know what kind of day I'm going to have. There, there are certain things I can tell in advance are going to make it more likely I have a bad day. Uh, October to February is just a rough time of year. Mm -hmm. It's it's cold and flu season. It's norovirus season. It's everything season. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's I, I get sick a lot this time of year. But outside of things like that, it's just really hard to predict when I'm going to have a good day and when I'm going to have a day where I'm completely in bed and not functional at all. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think that's I, maybe it's not such a left, such a wild left turn, but it's like maybe because that's true, that keeps you from slipping off into a controlled faith again. You know what mm. I mean? And no, not, I don't even I'm know what that means. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. That's actually a big light bulb moment for me that, yeah. that you're right. There are still times. I mean, I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And yet there are times when I am tempted to fall into some of those same patterns of just wanting answers and to fix this and to move on and have whatever the next phase of life looks like instead of just sort of accepting this is mm -hmm. life, right? We're not, we, we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like and we're not necessarily promised a tomorrow. Mm -mm. So we're all sitting around waiting for someday when I get better, someday when I finally have a baby, someday when I get married, someday when I get that job, someday when I'm out of debt, whatever someday when looks like, we, we don't, we don't live the life we have right now. Yeah. And if we're not doing that, how can we be in any kind of genuine faith? If there's this disconnect between living life and having sort of these mental ideas of faith, mm -hmm. I don't think that's a faith that serves any purpose, right? Like no. theology's got to have skin on it. it. It doesn't do us any good if it's just ideas out of philosophy books in a classroom that we sit around and debate. If, if your theology doesn't wear skin and walk around and live in your neighborhood, it, it's useless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, 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 yes. And, um, PS, like when people write, especially when people write books that they need, like you wrote this book because you couldn't find it anywhere, you know, so you had to write it. Yes. Um, it's like, 
even sometimes authors sometimes, but rarely, but people definitely think you wrote the book. So now you're living all these things, you know, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. No, but yeah. the truth is no, like I, you know, you wrote this book cause you needed it and you're going to be living it out for the rest of your life, you know, and to, to, to varying degrees of embracing and, and discarding, you know, and then probably ultimately transcending it at a certain point for something very connected, but bigger, you know? I think that's why, and I don't want to give too much away. I think that's why I wanted to give the book the ending that it has, because admittedly you get to the end of the book and I drop an ending on your lap that feels Mm -hmm. very unresolved and very like, I don't understand the point of this entire chapter now. Like I, I was with (laughs) you, you made these great points. I was understanding the book was great. And then you drop this last chapter on us. That is a steaming pile of doo-doo that serves (laughs) no purpose and leaves us confused. What was that? And I think part of it was I wanted a way to acknowledge what you just said, right? It's not, and now I've solved the Mm -hmm. answer to suffering. Now I have given you a different version of John Piper theology, right? Yeah, exactly. His answer is wrong, but mine is good. So now you have an answer and I've got this mastered and I don't worry about suffering in my life anymore. I've just accepted it all. Yay. (laughs) I wanted to create space for the reality of it. That doesn't exist. And anybody that tells you it does is lying. And I just refuse to write that book. Yeah, well, because, you know, you can make a certainty out of uncertainty. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like, like you can. That's cynicism, right? That's, I was doing that. I was convinced and I had spiritualized cynicism, right? Like, I don't ask for healing, not because I'm a cynic, but because I've accepted God's plan for me to be, like, I've just accepted suffering. I mean, and it took me a lot and I'm still working on recognizing that, man, sometimes acceptance really is just cynicism. Yeah. It's it's not wanting to deal with hope because hope is scary and terrifying and vulnerable. And hope for me really is this conversation, right? This mm-hmm. theme of not having the answers and living in that space of not having the answers and accepting that space and finding goodness in that space and not wanting to exit that space and actually feeling like that's the holiest ground to stand on is when we say, I don't understand everything. Mm -hmm. There is mystery here. There are things that are going to blow up even these new conclusions I've come to, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. And I'm willing to experience that. That's sort of what hope looks like for me now. Oh, I love that. I just love everything you just said. And God help us if we ever write the book that we look back on 30 years from then and say, oh, yeah, well, I, I still totally believe everything in that book. You know what I mean? God help us all if that's anyone's lot. That would be horrible. I'm sure if you ask me 10 years from now, and it, it's hard to say now because, you know, mm-hmm. the book just came out in August. But I'm sure if you ask me 10 years from now, there'll be times that I'll say, yeah, I don't I don't know if I take that stance anymore. Mm-hmm. I sort of even the talk that I gave oh, yeah. at a college that inspired this book, yeah. right? That I talk about, I've listened back to the recording and there are a few things that mm-hmm. I said that I'm like, mm, mm-hmm. that was too simplistic. I'm not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I hadn't said that. Yeah. I would go back and correct it. So I think it's always gonna change. Yeah, and then we can look back and have great self-compassion, you know, and sort of say, oh, sweetie. You know, you know, like, I mean, I say that sometimes when I read something or, or hear something that I used to say, or, well, at first I go, oh my gosh, what an idiot. But does you that know? help you give compassion to other people then, right? 100%, yes. So that you can say, you know, I've 
progressed even past some of my own ideas, I, I can't really hold it against. Like yes. we were saying earlier, right? I don't think my church that I grew up in was a horrible no. place. I don't think they were bad people. And I don't think they set out to give me faulty beliefs. Mm-mm. I think we all were operating with the structure that we had and the knowledge we had at the time in the best way we knew how. And I feel as much as I hate this word, blessed <laughs> that that tragedy and suffering and difficulty gave me a different perspective. But I also, you know, that allows me to recognize that not everybody's been given that sort of easy road into perspective, if you will. There's nothing easy about it. But in terms of finding perspective, it's the easier way to do it. Yeah. yeah. So I can't really fault people that aren't there. No. And yeah, the temptation is to do that, though, is to look look down on someone who hasn't, you know, expanded into whatever level that you think you yeah. have, you know, and then to look forward with some fear of people who are farther than us. But but I think when, you know, when we can just settle down into the fact that we all are doing the very, like, all that we can do, and like, until we hit moments where we're forced, these bathroom floor moments, until we hit those moments, which we never would have, which we would never choose those, ever. No, no one would choose that. But until we hit those moments where now what we what used to work doesn't work anymore so we have to keep expanding and i think that's the ultimate universal human invitation from god to us will Mm. you keep expanding you know Mm. and and that and that should bring humility you know because that means that what i believe now even with some you know passion and fire hopefully we'll keep expanding you know And when it does expand, I I think it doesn't mean that I was wrong then. It just means, oh, it just was smaller, you know, and that's okay. Yeah. So. I like that. Well, I like this. You know, this conversation (laughs) is so great. Thank you, Steph, so much for. Thanks for having me. going there. Um, You pulled things out of my book that I haven't talked about on any other shows yet. So that was delightful for me. Well, I really enjoyed it. And, and I love. I, I do. I love how you think, uh, especially about these, you know, avoiding the extremes and and seeing social prosperity gospel in so many different ways. And so, uh, okay, Steph's book is out. It's called The View from Rock Bottom, Discovering God's Embrace in Our Pain. You can follow Steph on her website, stephanietatewrites.com. That's T-A-I-T. And you can follow her on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'll have all those links on the show notes. Uh, Steph, is there anything else you're doing these days that you want people to be aware of so they can follow you and get into stuff that you're doing? I actually can't say. I have some big things coming up at the beginning of next year. So follow me on social media if you want to find out what those are. When I'm allowed to start sharing, I will. So (laughs) don't miss it. Okay. So again, just uh, if you want to hit the show notes, steveweens.com slash show notes. And um, yeah, follow Steph. She's she's doing really, really good and important work in the world. And I can't wait to hear what some of those things are, Steph. That's, that's going to be fun. 
Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.